Hi everyone, we've had such a great response to our interview with Dr. Sarah Prado that we decided to release an extended version of it for you. Thank you so, so much for your continued support and uh, we hope that you enjoy. Hi Sarah, welcome to Carrying Wayward. How are you doing today? Hey Mary, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. It's so wonderful. We're so grateful that you agreed to this. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm excited. This should be fun. Yeah, this is seriously exciting. Like the idea of having a professional on our show for anything just is like a level I never expected us to get to, let alone this soon. Uh, I figure for our listeners, I should introduce. This is Dr. Sarah Prado. She's an entomologist from Raleigh, North Carolina. She earned both a master's degree and her PhD from North Carolina State University. Her master's degree investigated the use of parasitic wasps as pest control. And for her PhD project, she studied how pollination of coffee plants differs between incentivized shade coffee plantations and sun plantations in Puerto Rico. She's currently studying the impact of urbanization on insect-plant interactions in the tropics and plans to communicate her findings to the folks in the regional government who can hopefully incorporate these in their future urban development plans. Did I cover anything? Anything else you want to bring up? No, that's perfect. Thank you. Whew, good. <laughs> I just want to make sure people know you are an impressive figure. Oh, thank you. When we say we got a professional, I want people to know we got a professional. Oh, man, you make <laughs> me feel like a grown-up right now. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So Sarah, we actually have some uh, questions for you with regards to uh, this episode of Supernatural called Bugs. As you can imagine, we'll be talking about insects and we have some questions for you. Is that okay with you? Yeah, I'm excited. Shoot. Go for it. So Amazing. So if I can jump right in, the first major scene of this episode, we see beetles crawling inside of somebody and eating them alive. They go in through the ears, the nose, and just eat the entire brain. Is there even a species of beetles that would do this, that would, like, feed on human tissue? And is any part of this in any realm something possible in any way, shape, or form? Yeah. um, Well, actually, like, a lot of beetles will feed on um, animal tissue. And um, there's particular (laughs) beetles that are called carrion beetles that actually are there for dead um, bodies. And they're, like, important decomposers of dead bodies. But for, like, a live human to actually, like, get in and start eating their brains out seems a little unrealistic. I don't think I've ever heard of anything like that happening. Um, There are, like, some flies, for example, that can lay their eggs in your skin and then their um, larvae will eat your skin a little bit as they develop. Um, But it's nowhere to the point where you'll die over it or anything like that. So... Yeah, definitely if it's a dead body, it's doable and um, likely. Um, But if it's a live person, I find that a person can easily swat away whatever bug might come their way. (laughs) So, on a positive note, we can consider this fairly busted. On a (laughs) side note, I now have more things to fear in my life that I wasn't aware of before, but... (laughs) I, I'll take I'll, I'll take the win-lose. I'm not going to have bugs crawling in my head to eat my brain, but I may have a maggot in my skin at some point. You know exactly. what? It takes, yeah. You win some, you lose some. Exactly. You, you probably wouldn't be so bothered by the maggot in your skin. It's uh, been told it kind of feels like you got a mosquito bite that hurts a little bit. So it's not too bad. You just might see a fly come out of your skin eventually. 
it was just so that that was such an interesting progression here where you said you know it just feels like a bit of a a mosquito bite that hurts a little bit and all of a sudden i was so reassured i'm like oh so it was it's not so bad and then you go you would only see a fly come out of your skin and all of a sudden all of my fear came back (laughs) yeah i think you could easily tackle it before that fly actually matures and comes out as an adult all of my friends that I know that have had bot flies, they have had, like, they've killed it before it's come out as an adult. There's been a little maggot that comes out. Um, mm. And surprisingly, I know, like, three or four people. <laughs> On top of the, the, the lack of realism in terms of, you know, being able to actually swat away um, the, the, the beetles, this scene that Drew described to you, it happens very quickly. Like, it's barely three minutes. Can we talk a little bit about the realism or accuracy of this for a beetles to completely destroy a body in three minutes <laughs> a, a brain a brain least. okay yeah i don't think i mean it depends how many beetles there are so for example um like this question kind of makes me remember a project that i did when i was like in my first year of my master's degree we like were given piglet carcasses and we had to do some kind of entomological experiment with them And so me and my friend, we decided we were going to put them out in different environments and see how their decomposition varied over time. Um, And so it depends on the environment that they are. So like wetter areas might have um, uh, like more swelling of the skin and and, um, just might take a little longer sometimes than drier areas or full sun. Um, So yeah, time differs and also differs with the species that come in. Um, So... Yeah, I'm not sure that three minutes is uh, really logical. I guess if you have, like, a lot of beetles at the brain, they'll eat it away. But, uh, yeah, I don't know how how realistic that would be for, like, an actual carcass. Okay. Okay. That, I mean, that makes sense. So do we consider this one debunked too, Drew? Well, I don't know. The, the amount of, I, I feel like we'd have to count how many beetles were in that scene. <laughs> and if I had to ballpark it, I'd say something in the number range of, like, two to three hundred. Oh. Yeah, I don't know. I don't I think it like... would still happen in three minutes. I think it'd take longer. Okay. Okay, so we'll, we can debunk that one as well, which, again, is more comforting, I like. And that <laughs> yes. that experiment they had you do for your class, that sounds incredibly interesting. I'd love to talk more about that one off the air. Yeah, sure. It was uh, very smelly and disgusting over time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the smell part didn't hit me right away. That's a good call. Yeah. Hmm, maybe yeah. less. So throughout this episode, there's kind of this running theme of uh, the main... I guess we can call him the antagonist. He's kind of the I don't believe in the evil spirit guy until suddenly it's happening to him. Uh, His son has a bunch of pet bugs and is very into being out in the woods and uh, watching the insect population and even studying it a bit. And we're kind of led to believe that he is the, I'm air quoting this very hard for people listening, an outcast or a rebel. Is that like a very common thing you see with people when it comes to working with bugs or studying insects um i mean i i wouldn't say i'm like considered an outcast or a rebel people are usually surprised to hear that i study insects because it's just kind of like a strange thing i think when you bring it up um i also don't think that like having pet insects is much of like a strange thing i mean i think it's a little different but it's probably just as strange as having a like a lizard or a fish or an amphibian as a pet because really they don't really interact with you. Um, so insects are just about the same in those ways. 
Um, I do know uh, like a couple of people that have like um, these insects called Madagascar hissing cockroaches as pets. And so they're a little like maybe what, like three inches big and they're chunky little cockroaches and they hiss. And so they're like dynamic in that they like make noise for you. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't think that they're like too different from any other non-interactive house pet. Um, but yeah, I haven't had anybody look at me weird when I say I study insects. They're just usually surprised and curious about it. I have had like some weird comments where they're like, you don't look like what an entomologist should look like. So I wonder what an entomologist Whoa. should look like. Yeah. <laughs> Not a cool answer. Uh, before we go to the next question, uh, I totally have to add an addendum to that. Um, have you ever had a pet bug? Um, no, actually. I tried, to, like when I was a kid, you know, you try to like catch your uh, caterpillars and raise them to become butterflies. They always died. I'd forget to yeah. feed them or something like that or not give air holes or something terrible. Um, but I did gift my nephew like a little kit for ants so that he could like collect some ants from his backyard and start a colony or something like that. So Cute. Yeah. Yeah. I think they're super cool. Do you mind if I just ask you more questions about the what an entomologist is supposed to look like? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> did you did you ever follow up on that question and say like, oh well, what do you think an entomologist is supposed to look like? Yeah, people I think usually think the entomologist should be ugly and like nerdy. I think. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, so that's like what the general like consensus was is that like I was uh, looked too normal or too pretty to be an entomologist. So it was a little strange, but there, there are a lot of women and, um, Mm -hmm. increasingly anyway, when I was in grad school, there were a lot of women. I think we were mostly women in grad school and I think a lot of them were very pretty. So we're gradually making a change from the older, um, male, you know, population Mm -hmm. of entomologists to becoming a more diverse group of people. So maybe, maybe in the past, Yeah, maybe in the past and possibly also due to media representation, right? Yeah. I mean, if if this is the kind of representation that we're getting for people who like insects, then it, I guess it would be normal that people wouldn't expect, um, you know, normal looking <laughs> right. people. And again, I'm air quoting this pretty hard, but like <laughs> normal looking people right. to, uh, to, to want to study them, right? Yeah, I'm... I agree with that. Like it's it's uh, probably something that just people are fed into by the media or just TV shows or movies or whatever. Yeah, I'm trying mm-hmm. to think of like any movie or TV show where they've had a scientist who specialized in a certain area, and there's always kind of like the cliche. Like if it's archaeology, they're clearly an old white guy. If it's like something more worldly, it's usually a younger hip woman. I mean, typically, so white male is kind of what the go-to is in my yeah. from from what I've seen. So, yeah. <laughs> Let's break that. Yeah. So I was also wondering: so, um, Do insects of different species congregate? I know that you talked a little bit about the lack of interaction with humans when they're being kept as pets, but um, the teen who likes insects and has them as pets, his name is Matt, and he finds out that bugs are congregating on an ancient indigenous burial ground. I'm just going to ask you to put the ancient indigenous <laughs> burial ground to the side for now. We'll be discussing that critically later. Okay. <laughs> But so do insects of different species congregate? Yeah, I mean, it makes 
a lot of sense for insects to congregate if you just think about like agricultural fields. Um, that's like a mm. massive food source. So any kind of attraction for resources like food sources or um, nesting resources will attract insects. Um, so if you think of a large agricultural field, you'll have different species of insects eating different parts of the plants. You'll have some that are in the soil. You have some that are leaf eaters, some that are phloem feeders. So it's not an abnormal thing to assume that they will congregate. They won't congregate just for the heck of being close together. They'll congregate because there's a, a food source or something that's drawing them in. Mm-hmm. So then I suppose that it would make sense for them to congregate on a burial ground because there's a food source in the human remains. Yeah, I guess for the um, decomposing like the decomposers, mm-hmm. the insects that are there. Okay. So, yeah, I think if there's a lot of fresh flesh for them to feed on, that would make sense. If it's okay. like an ancient burial ground that has basically just bones, uh, it mm-hmm. wouldn't make too much sense. But it's interesting that given the right scenarios, it makes sense. Yeah, you think of different ecosystems being built around, whether it be uh, something decomposing or just the right kind of food source that you'd have different types of insects interacting with each other or at least coexisting yeah absolutely yeah you'll have flies beetles um, whatever other insects might just come up and feed on different parts like some might go for the skin some might go for the fleshy bits some i don't know the juices i don't know (laughs) i'm not a forensic entomologist but yeah i'm sure there's different specializations of the, the little insects that are eating them so somehow we've really gotten deep into this dead bodies and bugs thing. So I'm going to take a step away from those. Uh, it, near the end of the episode, and this is one of those things where I really go in uh, skeptically, but I'm hoping to get a cool answer from you on this one. Go for it. Uh, they mentioned how bees must have chewed through phone lines and power lines. It, like a swarm of, and we're talking like, I think if you've seen this scene, it's like tens of thousands. Is that even feasible? Like, Regardless of whether they would or wouldn't, which I'm still curious to know, could they? Like, eat actual power lines? I don't think like there would be... Like, chew through a power line? Yeah, I don't think there would be too much reason to do that unless they were, like, stuck on the other side. Like, if they were... That was the only way to exit whatever place they were in. Um, if they had to chew through a path of power lines, then they probably would. Um, but there's some bees that particularly do use their mandibles, which is like their mouth parts, um, to chew. And so they'll use it to chew through woods, for example, or plant parts, um, like carpenter bees. I'm sure you've, you've seen carpenter mm-hmm. bees cause damage on your fences or whatever wooden structure that you have. So they're using their mandibles and they're just literally chewing away at the, at the fibers. Um, so I don't think that any bee would actually just chew through a power line for no reason. Um, the only animal that I know that might chew through something like that is a rat, maybe. Um, but, yeah, I don't think a bee would do that. Okay, so we have bees that are capable of chewing through plant matter wood for more of a biological reason, so fe- physically mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't, and I'm not surprised here, they wouldn't chew through a power line or phone line. I can't imagine either. <laughs> but in this fictional scenario, if they had to, they could uh, so now that we've actually done a lot of uh, debunking, uh, there's a part that I'm actually really interested in to, to talk uh, to you about because the show actually, so the show was shot in 2005, so about 15 years ago, just to kind of situate you. Um, they used 
actual live bees to film uh, the, again, air quote, um, bee battle scene. So at the end, uh, you know, the curse of the insects is at its highest and they're trying to stay alive from all of these bees attacking them. And so the show actually used 60,000 bees to film that scene where the actors are trying to stay alive until the morning in order to outlive the curse. Um, so all of the actors actually got stung multiple times um, and then all that to realize in post-production that the bees didn't actually show well enough on camera and they had to CGI them in. So what are your thoughts about using 60,000 bees in a small space with actors who probably don't have much experience in being around bees in general, let alone so many? Uh, and, it's, and also for the bees, I mean, is it dangerous? Is it stressful for them to, to be in those situations? Yeah, uh, I think it's like a pretty hilarious thing that they used 60,000 <laughs> bees and thought that that would be wise to do with actors. <laughs> And that the actors are okay with that. I think that's just kind of funny. Um, and I mean, honestly, I... Um, so, okay, multiple parts to your question. So let me try to focus. Yeah, sorry. So, yeah. <laughs> so question. I guess like if the bees... So I assume that they were using honeybees, which is probably the case. Um, honeybees are more domesticated kind of bees. And so they could be moved through with hives. Um, and so usually domesticated honeybees are considered relatively tame and so they don't behave too erratically when they're around people but usually I think it's the person that cares for them and knows how to handle them mm -hmm. um, and honeybees in general they'll um, they actually can die when they sting you and so they will only sting when it's a really dangerous or threatening situation for them because what happens with the honeybees their abdomens will actually tear off with the stinger And so mm -hmm. it leaves them completely exposed. And so their internal organs just are exposed and, and they can die from that. Um, whereas some other bee species, um, their stinger is kind of more like a, just a needle and it'll just poke you and, and come right out. And so it not, doesn't necessarily kill them when they, when they sting you. So I think it was probably not the best decision for... Um, I mean, I guess it's not the best thing for the honeybees um, to be around that many people and um, aggravated to the point where they're stinging. Um, mm -hmm. I don't think it's safe for the actors, depending on whether or not they have allergies, for example. That could be actually deadly if they do have allergies and they get mm -hmm. stung. Um, and also just it hurts. <laughs> so it's not a pleasant thing to get stung yeah. by a bee. Um, but yeah, I don't think... Uh, I don't think I would ever recommend using live bees in a scene that's especially inside, like an in indoor scene. It just mm -hmm. seems like a, a bad situation waiting to happen. Mm -hmm. And also, like, on an e from an ethical standpoint, because I understand that bees are... Animals. Are, they're animals. Yeah. And, um, mm -hmm. And they're also, uh, their, their population is declining, from what I understand. Again, this was 2005, so I'm not sure what the state of their population density was at the time. But it just feels like for animals that are so important in our food chain to be used on a TV show, where clearly some of them probably died because they stung, I'm just wondering about the ethics of all of that. 
Yeah, I mean, I think in general, people are usually more lax about per, like allowing research with insects, for example. Um, mm-hmm. Like if you're studying insects, you don't necessarily have to um, file for like the ethical paperwork um, to show that you know mm-hmm. how to handle and care for the animal ethically, um, which mm-hmm. is, I think, good and bad in a way. So it makes it easier to do the research um, and we can be more aggressive with our kind of research, but it's also... Um, means that we might be torturing the insects um, while we're studying them. Mm-hmm. Um, and as for like their population decline, I don't think it would make much of an impact if it's probably just one, one or okay. two hives, depending on how many um, you know bees are in a hive. Um, yeah, I, I don't think that would be too bad, especially since honeybees, okay. they are strongly affected by agricultural practices like agrochemicals and different things like that. Mm-hmm. But um, I guess just being brought into a building would be a stressor, but honeybees in general are exposed, domesticated honeybees are exposed to a lot of stressors in their lifetime. Like they are mm-hmm. actually, uh, just like brought by the truckload to different agricultural fields, um, to pollinate. And then when that pollination season is up, they go to the next field. Um, so they're just kind of like slave bees, I think is what I would call them. Um, so mm-hmm. they're not generally treated well. Um, so I don't think this is like much better or much worse. I was going to say just that's so much information and so interesting, especially as someone who really feels for bees. Like I just, I find to be one of those mm. as much as I'll be very, very frank. I'm not the biggest fan of most insects or bugs or arachnids, <laughs> but I do find honeybees to be kind of adorable and I understand the plight of them disappearing, how bad it affects the world. So, like, I have a soft spot in my heart. So hearing that really, like, just kind of, like, a, to- like a, pa- a pang of heart pain and, like, oh, poor things. Yeah, it's a lot of bees, but they're small. Um, hmm. And they're probably not all out at the same time. Yeah, that <laughs> like, it's highly unlikely that 60,000 bees will just, like, fly out at the same time if they're in the mm. same colony they have different okay. roles um within the colony and some might have i mean bees generally just leave the colony to go and pick by find food and bring it back to the colony that's their job they're just going out and getting picking up nectar and pollen so mm. when they were leaving they were probably looking for food sources um mm-hmm. They probably didn't find it since it was inside, mm. and then they probably just yeah. went back into the hive where we're starting to just look farther and farther away. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not really sure what, what it would look like in a building, depending on the size and what how they would really mm. react in an indoor space, actually. That's actually really interesting. I follow... Uh... Uh, a beekeeper on instagram cool and she does she yeah she does um uh bee removals basically mm-hmm. whenever there's you know they're they're located in a in an area that's not really bee friendly yeah and she you know it, it's true so i i i did notice that they're not all out right a lot of them are in the hive and then only once the queen is taken out of the location and put into the, the box do all of the other ones actually follow. Right, yeah. So it, it makes a lot of sense because it's true. When I imagine 60,000 bees, I was just thinking about them out all at once, but I realize now that you're saying this that it doesn't make sense and that's that's not how they would actually behave. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, it's not normal unless they took the queen out to make them all mm-hmm. fly and follow her. Um, which then they would probably just all be following the queen. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so that actually ties in right away with the question I had lined up next, which is that kind of very movie or TV show swarm of bees. Like I'm picturing even that cartoon of like Scooby-Doo running from that little cloud of bees behind him. Is swarming like that in any species of bee normal or like actually something that would happen? Yeah, I haven't actually experienced a swarm, like a cloud of bees, or I don't think, I don't really know how likely that would be. But uh, that question actually brought back like a really like forgotten memory of mine from uh, years ago. Yeah, I think it was like 27, not 2017, 2007. And I was in the... um, Peruvian jungle, because that's where I was doing some um, research and doing some volunteer work. And one of our tasks was to clear a path um, in the middle of the forest that one day. And we were using machetes. And so um, what, like, when you, the, the, like, the rules when you're using machetes is you give each other space so that you're not going to accidentally, like, hit each other with your machete. So I was the second in line behind one person that was ahead of me. And then there was two or three other people behind me. And we were all just clearing the trail, and all of a sudden, I see the guy in front of me just like running, like like it's like being chased by a wild animal. And I just like have no idea what to do, but I just assume I should run too. So I start to run with him, and I'm like, "What are we running from?" And he's like, "Bees!" And I was like, "Oh shit!" So we're like legit running for our lives. And I'm like picking up the two other people that were behind us, and we're all four of us are like jumping over things, like through a creek and onto the like ledge to just get over. And we're like running and running and running. And, like, from this thing that you can't really even see because it's, like, not a cloud. It's, like, probably, like, I don't know. how I don't know how many bees were following us, but I got stung on my arm, like, under my arm as I, like, pinched it by running. And the guy in front of me got stung two or three times, too. But it wasn't, like, a cloud of bees that you see, like, you know, the angry little hornet face on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yes, they do swarm. And it was actually the guy in front of me, he had been macheteing around a hive and he didn't realize it. I think they were, like, in a dead tree trunk that was nearby. And they actually had put out, like, a warning sound. Um, So this particular species, like, created a drumming sound. Um, And so you could hear it and he could hear it. Um, but he didn't realize what it was until it was too late and they got angry enough to start to try and get chase after him and get him away from their hive. Um, so yeah, they'll swarm, but they won't swarm just for no reason. They're not like unnecessarily aggressive. Um, wasps are usually aggressive, but wasps don't really swarm. Um, so yeah. Yeah. Of, of all the things I expected to come across today and go like, is totally cartoon magic, but like. Huh. I mean, yeah, the depiction's very cartoony, but, like, they'll actually swarm and chase people. Like, it's not only yeah. real, but we have an actual, you know, witness. Yeah. A real life experience. That's yeah. amazing. Real life run Th- for Thank my you life. for your efforts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a really strong memory that just, like, I completely forgot about, which is, is fun to remember. <laughs> so the one of the wonderful things about working with Supernatural is that they have been around for so long, right? Uh, They've been around for 15 years. So as I said, the 
episode was filmed in 2005. Were we aware that the bee population was declining? Was it declining? Like, what was the state of that? Yeah, it's very likely that it was declining and it's been declining since then. Um, but apparently the, the colony collapse disorder was first identified in like 2006. So people probably hadn't been um, told or informed about, mm. you know, caring for the bees the way that we have heard now. Um, okay. And also like, uh, I, I feel like an important point that I need to make is that this it seems like this show... Um, focuses on honeybees and there's so many mm-hmm. different other species of bees there's over 20,000 species of bee and bees in the world okay so honeybees um, which are the most common ones that like people know about I guess is not common in terms of numbers but like common in terms of like and inf- like people just being informed about honeybees um, mm-hmm. are important because they're domesticated and they're used to pollinate crops because they could be brought around but there's native bees that live outside and pollinate the crops um, just as or even more effectively than honeybees. And those Mm. populations are really important to think about as well. And I think those have been um, in decline as well. So like bumblebees, those are are native bees. Um, And there's Mm. a bunch of other bees out there that are native bees. That's really interesting. It's true. I had never really stopped to think about the different species of bees. So Mm -hmm. thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. yeah, that's really important. No, I feel like that's one of those things you always like. You don't realize how many insects like species there are. Like let alone like forget just bees, but just in general. Yeah, there are so many, and like they're still being discovered on a pretty regular basis. Like I think at least like once or twice a year, it'll stumble into my news feed of like, oh, a new species of blank was discovered in whatever forest or jungle this year, and it's like, how are they still doing that? Yeah, yeah, Very yeah. Impressive. I think- I think, so I read that, like, there's uh, over 1 billion insects per human in this world. Wow. So, that's not species, but that's just, like, quantity. So, that's, like, an important thing to, like, put your, wrap your mind around, which is crazy. Yeah. Wow. I'm not sure I can wrap my head around that. It's a very large number. Like, yeah, I feel like you, 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 we've all seen that thing floating around, too, of, like, understanding how much a billion is. Right, yeah. Like, it's, it's just an astronomically large number that you forget how big it is. So when you think about mm-hmm. it in that context of just individual insects and bugs and whatever on this planet, like, compared to you, it's like, that's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> that is a lot. My goodness. Well, I mean, so Sarah, can you tell tell us a little bit more about how you came to study insects and uh, maybe like what you're currently focusing on? Yeah. So how I came to study insects is not the most scientific way. <laughs> it's, a, okay. it's, it's probably like a little bit of a roundabout slash embarrassing story, but I'm going to say it anyway, because it's just how, so how life happens. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm half Peruvian, half Iranian, um, but born in Canada. And so, um, I took a trip with my dad. It was my second trip to Peru that I took and it was in 2006. And, um, we visited a city in Peru called Puerto Maldonado and it was a jungle city. And, um, so we visited the, the Amazon jungle on that, on that, during that trip and, um, stayed at a lodge for, I think five days, four nights. And during that time, I developed a crush on this guy that worked at the lodge. 
And so it was my intention to return to that lodge the next year and like go back and be with him. And I had no plan whatsoever of what I was going to do. I just knew that I wanted to go back to Peru and be with him. And my dad, being a protective Peruvian man, was like, no way you're just going into Peru in the middle of the jungle with no plan of like what you're going to do with your life. (laughs) So he found a way for me to volunteer and work at the lodge that I wanted to return to and um, be a resident naturalist is what they called it. And so in exchange for my time um, doing research and work around the lodge, um, I got free room and board. And so I got to work with different scientists that were um, at the lodge and help them out during their, doing their projects. Um, and I got to you know, study parrots and macaws and um, plant respiration and different things like that and look at um, caimans in the rivers. But like always what I had in mind was when I go to the jungle, I'm going to be studying like monkeys because that's like super cool. And so okay. my plan was always to like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find a monkey and I'm going to study it and it's going to be my future. But I didn't realize that like in the jungle, when you walk in, the trees are very tall and monkeys are at the top of the trees. And <laughs> so it's very unlikely that you'll see one just walking on the ground like saying, hey, follow me. No. So your entire time you're like with your neck up, looking up in the trees and you're probably walking past all these monkeys that are staring down at you. And you're missing out on them. And I'm not a patient person. So I gave up studying and looking at the top of the trees because one, it's like hurts your neck. And two, you can trip over roots all the time. Um, And so I started to look at the ground. And that's when I started to see ants. Um, And Mm. ants are super interesting insects um particularly there was like two types of two types of ants that i thought were really interesting when i was there which were the leaf cutter ants and they um have really big colonies and they form trails where they're all just carrying leaves or flower parts in their mandibles like little flags that they're carrying and they make a line as they go from the tree to their nest and um, they grow the the they grow fungus off of the F of the leaves so they don't actually eat the plant parts they grow fungus so they're little farmers and then um, my second encounter with ants or like I guess the one that was really the nail in the coffin was um, on my last day that year um, while I was in the jungle I decided you know look I've been in Peru all this time and I don't have a suntan like I haven't tanned while I've been here because I've been under the canopy cover all this time and my friends are going to be like I've you've been in the tropics all this time and you don't have a tan so I decided I'm gonna I was gonna go get a tan <laughs> keep in mind I was like 17 years old at this point so I was a little shallow and I decided, no, I'm not going to wear my field gear. I'm going to just go with flip-flops and shorts and a T-shirt or a tank top and bring a sweater just to use as a pillow as I lie down on this, like, one bench. And so it was, like, half a mile trek to get there. It was very easy. You could get there, like, in no time. But stupid me, you don't wear flip-flops in the middle of the jungle. Don't do that. It's dangerous (laughs) and stupid. So I just was, like walking in the jungle, minding my own business. And all of a sudden I started to feel something like pinching my feet. And I didn't even like think to look down, but until it started to really hurt. 
And then I saw that I had been walking through an army ant colony. And army ants are like these ants that form their nests out of their bodies and they're mobile nests. So basically they'll move depending on where their food sources are. And so I think at this point, this particular nest had been dismantled and the ants were starting to go and forage for another, like for food resources or also just like moving to a different location. So it was like thousands of ants on the ground. And army ants are like their name say, like they're, they're ready to fight and they have really massive mandibles. Like they're almost the same size as their head for the soldiers. And they just like are like needle point, like at the tip of the mandible. And they just pinched into my skin. And I had those like cheap styrofoamy kind of flip flops. And they pinched into my flip flops and got stuck in them. And my reaction was just like, abandon my shoes and run. <laughs> so I started to run, but I was again being stupid and didn't run back to the lodge. I ran towards the point where I was trying to get to. And then I realized, like, shit, I don't have any flip-flops, and I'm walking in the jungle. Like, this isn't smart. So I had only a sweater in my hands and decided I was going to use the little arms of the sweater as, like, little shoes, I guess. Like, so I held the sweater and put the arms on my feet and, like, ran back through that entire army ant trail. My sweater was covered in probably, like, over 500 ants in just that period of time. And I got to back to the lodge, picked up my boots and picked up my pants and like went back to save my flip flops. But um, it was that was like the nail in the coffin that I was like, ants are way too cool. Like, this is what I want to study. And so that was it. Like, that's they attacked me into loving them. (laughs) That's adorable. I love the entire story. Oh, my God. I don't think that there's any part of this story that I don't love. I agree. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah, it's basically just, like, watching them behave as, like, a super colony is essentially what they look like. Mm -hmm. I'm not super colony, but, like, super unit. Like, all of Mm -hmm. them are just acting together, like, as parts of the same brain, which is really cool. God, I could sit and listen to you talk about ants for the rest of my life. Like, (laughs) I thought ants were interesting, and now I'm learning that they're a thousand times more interesting than I could have known. Yeah, there's there's like a book called The Ants, and that's like the Bible of ants, and you can definitely find out a lot of stuff on that topic. So yeah, <laughs> if ever you're that's interested. So cool. Earlier this year in January, I started a new job with a professor at NC State who studies the effects of urbanization on insects, basically, and the goal is not necessarily to look at how urban areas are going to affect um, plants and insects which is partially the goal, but secondly, it's um, urban areas are kind of used as a window into the future for climate change. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm sure you've all experienced like the warmer temperatures in urban areas compared to more rural areas or forested locations. And that's because like uh, concrete structures like buildings or the asphalt can really keep in heat. Um, So she studies um, how urban heat islands affects plants and insects and so I was creating a study based off of that to look at how um, plants and insect insect interactions with plants differ in the tropics compared to temperate regions in urban areas Um, because when you think about insects that are exposed to high temperatures in the tropics um, those high temperatures are just like year-round 
And Mm -hmm. most often those are just their thermal maxima. Um, Like they're not really able to have that flexibility that temperate region insects may have where they are exposed to really cold temperatures and really hot temperatures. So tropical insects might have a narrower, narrower thermal range. And so basically uh, we want to see if uh, with urbanization or like a, in, like as a preview for climate change, um, mm-hmm. if these insects will then be able to tolerate the higher temperatures that are found in urban areas or that are, will we, we will see in the future with climate change. So, yeah, this study is also going to take place in Peru. I, hadn't, I haven't been to Peru. I know it sounds like I've lived in Peru all this time, but no, I haven't been to Peru since 2010 um, to do research. So this was like my way to get back there and get picking up on the ants and all that because I was going to be studying ants again. Uh, so doing full circle wow. here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. But then COVID Narratively, hit. it's really great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But then COVID hit, and so my plans to travel there in May got canceled and uh, ended up doing mm. the research in Raleigh. But um, hopefully next year we'll be able to go and pick it up. Oh, it sounds yeah, amazing. Sure. It sounds like such a cool like, feel to be in right now, especially with the world changing as it is. Urban areas are like the next, I mean, they're a new ecosystem, and people don't really study it as such. Um, they just think about it as like a human disturbance, but that's really what, like, all these new all these animals are now exposed to plants and animals are exposed to so we need to study how they're going to respond to it so i guess lastly we we've learned so much from you so right away just a huge thank you for your time a huge thank you for your sharing your knowledge with us a huge thank you for the rabbit hole about ants i'm about to go digging into to learn more because i'm so interested all of a sudden (laughs) uh is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners uh whether it be just other interesting facts, things they can look up. If someone's interested, where could they go to learn more? Yeah, I mean, Wikipedia is a surprisingly good source of information about any insects. Um, I think people just remember need to remember that insects are super important. Like I said, there's like a ton of them out in this world. Um, and we need to remember that all of them play an important role in our lives that we might not necessarily think about. So I've talked about wasps, bees, and ants, and that's all part of the order Hymenoptera, and that's my favorite order, so I'm a little bit biased there. Mm-hmm. Um, but just thinking about these three um, different um, like insects uh, groups, basically like ants are really important at aerating soil and they fertilize soil. Bees are really important at pollinating, um, and wasps are super important biological control agents. And so I think there's just a lot of things that you need to think about when you're thinking about insects, not just, you know, it's flying in my face, let me swat it. Um, But like, what does it do? And and how is it helping me without me realizing it? So Hmm. yeah, we need to thank an insect today. (laughs) You know what? I think I'll I'll be doing that more now. (laughs) Yeah, good. I'm glad. Definitely. Thank you so much for your time, uh, Sarah. Honestly, it was such a blast to talk to you, and it, it was so interesting. Thank you so much for for being so generous with your time and your and your knowledge. Oh yeah, of course. I'm glad I could uh, help debunk this these facts and also share some of the stories that um, made me get to where I am right now. So hopefully, some people are That's gonna so cool. decide to study insects too. <laughs> 
Yeah, actually, speaking of which, if there's anyone out there who is interested in following your research, where can they find you online? Yeah, so I have a personal website. It's literally just my entire name.com. So sarahgtprado.com. Yeah, if anybody has questions, feel free to reach out. But there's a lot of knowledgeable people out there that they can reach out to, too. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you Amazing. so much. Yeah, thank you, guys. This has been fun. You've been listening to the extended interview with Dr. Sarah Prado. As part of Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Marie Villahou, and myself, Drew Schulman. As always, make sure to subscribe, rate and review on whatever platform you choose, and we'll see you next time.